0: I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. As we continue and nearing the end of this Reformation series, it's been a joy to be able to teach the second half of this, uh, doing the five solas, and we're going to pick up this morning in the fourth of our fifth in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11-11 through 14, and I would invite you, I don't know why you're here this morning, what kind of morning you had, whether it was great, you've already heard from the Lord this morning personally, whether you haven't even thought about it yet, but if you're in the place right now that you want to hear from God, I would invite you to respond simply with the word speak when I say this is the word of the Lord after we read it this morning. It says this, and every priest stands daily at his service Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemy should be made a footstool for his feet For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray together. Our God, we ask that you would speak through your word this morning. What an opportunity and what a text that we just read Overwhelm us by your holiness, overwhelm us by your grace, and spur us on to know you and to be like you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So, when my wife and I first got married, we lived in the state of Pennsylvania, and we were out visiting her family that lived in Columbus, Ohio. And we had a nice time with them a week or so, and it was time to now drive back home to Pennsylvania. And we had stopped at a rest area and used the facilities there and things and then came back out. My wife looked exceptionally tired. She had missed her family. And so I said, why don't you just sleep it off for a little while and trust me to get us home? She said, that's fine. You're going to be able to stay awake and things? You don't need me awake? I said, I'll be just fine. Well, we got on the highway and began to drive. And even in how I was so confident in myself that I would get us home. But the direction I was going, it was never going to happen. (laughs) And when my wife woke up, she said, why does it say that we're 120 miles from Columbus? And I said, because we're about 120 miles out from Columbus. So, well, why would it be telling us, though, if we're headed to Pennsylvania? Oh. (laughs) I was on 80 West when I needed to be going 80 East. And no matter how sincere I was, no matter how much confidence I had in myself and how much confidence my wife had in me, my sincerity was never going to get me there in the direction I was going because my faith was placed in the wrong spot. It was placed in an object that wasn't going in the right direction. And so faith for us this morning, it doesn't matter how sincere we are if our faith is in the wrong object. We have to have our faith in an object that truly can save. As we look at these five onlys of the Reformation, that's what solas mean, we began with the Bible alone and we saw last week grace alone through faith alone. So as you look up behind me, you'll be reminded as to what these different ones are. And as we continue this morning, we're looking at Solus Christus, seeing that grace alone is offered in salvation. That's how salvation is offered. Faith is how salvation is applied to us. And Jesus alone, Solus Christus, is the object of our faith that actually saves us. It's not our faith that saves, but it's the object of our faith that does indeed save. So, why talking about this 500th Reformation? Why talking about Protestant theology and Catholic theology? I mean, we live in a pluralistic society that says that, hey, you can believe in whatever you want. It's actually intolerant for you to say that Jesus is the only way to God, that exclusively he is the only way of salvation. I mean, we have that in common with the Catholic church. Why are we bringing this up? Shouldn't we be talking about those that don't even believe in Jesus? Well, the Catholic Church does not deny nor has denied the deity of Christ and the exclusivity of being the only way to God. But what we, where we differ is that we believe differently that what Christ has accomplished in the atonement, that is his sacrifice for sins, was that enough? Was Christ alone to, uh, able to accomplish salvation and so I think you're in a more dangerous spot if you believe in Jesus, but your faith, you don't understand what Christ actusly, actually accomplished when he died and when he rose again. As you remember, we say that uh, the Catholic and Protestant theology uses the same words, but we have a different dictionary. We both say that Jesus is Savior, but we have different meanings. Here at Sailorville, we're always preaching about Jesus, And there's a reason for that. We believe and Jesus tells us that all the scriptures point to him. They're either pointing towards him in the Old Testament, telling us about him in the Gospels, or pointing back to him and beyond the Gospels. And this morning is no different, but this morning is all about Jesus and what he is. And I'm just so excited to be able to share this with you. And I want to give to us this morning two areas where Jesus alone is sufficient. And the first one is Jesus alone is sufficient as the head of the church. What does that mean to be the head of the church? Not like the head of a company, but physically thinking about the head of a physical body. You can live without a hand or a foot, but once the body is disconnected from the head, it ceases to exist. Now this would have been the big question of the day in the Reformation. It was a huge deal. Who gets to run the church and who is in charge? And in effect, many people died over this question. In fact, John Huss or Jan Hus, who we were talked about at the beginning of this series, is one of the morning stars of the Reformation. This was the reason that he was put to death. He said, anyone who does not claim to, know Christ, to, to, do, to have Pope as the head of the church is to lose one's head. Well, John Huss wasn't beheaded. He was actually burnt at the stake all the while quoting the Psalms because he would not submit to say that the Pope was head of the church, but that Christ alone is. Martin Luther obviously had a big issue with the Pope as well being the head of the church. Uh, He always talked about this a lot, that Jesus Christ alone has that responsibility. He even went so far as to say this, I owe as much loyalty to the Pope as I do the Antichrist. He's not calling him the Antichrist, although Luther said a lot of different things, and maybe he was, but that's not what we're saying today. We're saying that we believe what the Word of God teaches, and we're not against Catholics but against anyone that teaches against what God's Word says, and so we want people to know the truth from God's Word And what Luther was saying from the scriptures is that nobody is required to have loyalty towards a pope, but we are required to have loyalty to Jesus as our head. And this comes right out of the scriptures. As Ephesians 1 verse 22 tells us, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is appointed head of all things, and as a head of all things, he is indeed the head of his body, the church. Paul also talks about this further in Colossians chapter 1, where he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, he might be first, he might be supreme, he might be preeminent. Vatican II, the council of the Catholic Church, uh, decided that the Pope is the vicar of Christ. That is, that he is his physical head, his physical representation on earth. And they decided at Vatican number one, that if you didn't believe that the Pope was the supreme authority over the church, that you were to be in an anthema. You were to be one that was condemned to hell if you did not hold to this doctrine. And what they also worked out is that the the pope could speak ex cathedra. That means when he sits in his chair, he can speak apostolically, 100% on behalf of God in all things in authority and practice. He was totally infallible when it came to his teaching and what he spoke. The Catholic Church also teaches, as many of you know, that Peter was not merely an apostle, but was given the keys of the kingdom, making him the first pope. And they also said that if you don't believe this, you certainly are, in an anthem as well, condemned to hell. And that Peter's supremacy has passed on to all popes that all descend directly from his line. Now, if this were the case, don't you think the scriptures would speak a lot more highly of Peter? I mean, every single mess up that Peter had that we are aware of is recorded in the Gospels. Even Galatians, Paul tells us about a mess up where he was being legalistic. Do you think if they knew that he was the Pope, maybe they'd come to Matthew and go, hey, Matthew, we know you're right in the gospel account. Maybe don't include that part where Jesus calls Peter Satan. That might not be uh, such a great idea for us right now. But no, they didn't omit anything. They showed that he was a man just like everyone else saved by grace. And Peter had it in his mind to show this to other people. This is how he starts his second letter in, first, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained, catch this, a faith of equal standing with ours by righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, we are all equally sinners. Yes, I have faith authority as an apostle, but my standing does not make me any better than anyone else. It's all by grace. I don't have this lofty position of a pope that is unreachable. I'm equal with you. What about pastors? What about elders, as the term is more referred to in scripture, those that God has entrusted with authority to lead the church of God, Well, the word pastor actually means shepherd. So pastors are not the head of the church, but we serve under the great shepherd, King Jesus, who is our senior pastor. We serve as under shepherds, under his authority. Now, the scriptures teach that we should listen to pastors and submit to their leadership. The book of Hebrews records, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. For they will give an account and it's to your advantage that they submit to them and listen to them and for your joy. 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us that leaders should be considered of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. So the Bible is all about showing respect and giving uh, obedience to those that God has placed in authority over you. But I think that there's this assumption within the church that somehow pastors have reached this new level of Christianity. And missionaries are are right up there as well. That they're at this second tier and we're up here speaking and everyone else is down below. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible doesn't teach that pastors are held to a higher standard than a regular Christian. In fact, if you look at the the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter one, you'll see some of those up behind me. You'll see that an elder is supposed to be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, okay? All these things in the qualifications of elders are the same qualifications that every Christian should be living by. It's not that we have this this higher... uh, level that we've reached, but that pastors, if you desire to be an elder, you should at least be living to the standard of a Christian. The differentiation differentiation is that pastors are able to teach. They have the gift of teaching, so they're able to handle and to teach God's word, and they have a life, the character qualities of someone who is living a godly life, and pastors will be judged by greater strictness but of the way that they serve their church. They will give an account of greater strictness because of teaching. The primary job is to us for, to teach and to be devoted to prayer. But that doesn't mean that pastors are above service. A couple weeks back, I came across a clogged toilet here at the church. And I took it upon myself to just go get a plunger and, unplunge, and unclog that thing. And as I was walking through the foyer where I had gone to get a plunger out of the uh, maintenance closet, a bunch of people like were saying, oh, that's good. Man, I'd love to see a pastor that's, not willing, that's willing to get his hands dirty and get involved. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Right. And I walked out. I was like, oh, right, right. But the reason I came across that toilet is because I was the one who clogged it. But The same principle applies though, right? Pastors are not higher. They're not above other Christians. And Luther was all about saying this too. Listen, there's nobody that's the head of the church. That's why he says this. He was upset with people calling themselves Lutherans. This is what he says. I first think I ask that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but call themselves Christians. What is Luther? Luther. This teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call themselves by my name? We have an equal standing together as Christians under our head, Jesus Christ. So, how are you living according to that standard? By God's grace, how are you doing? Are you thinking, oh, the pastors, the leaders of the church, they're the professionals. Now I know some of you around out here and you're probably more godly than some of us. But God is not calling you, us, to a higher standard, but the same level that he has called you to as a Christian. Live by his grace, Pursue that standard that he has called you to and be reminded that you are not infallible, that pastors are not infallible, but only one is, the man Jesus Christ. And we ought always to remind ourselves of that, and that is the way that we preach that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. Number two, Jesus' work alone achieves salvation. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Catholic theology says that Jesus' work is really good, but it's not enough on its own. As we saw last week, we saw that grace enables you now to work in tandem with God to achieve the, your, a right relationship with God. So That's what Catholic doctrine teaches, that you work with God by doing good works. J.D. Greer gives kind of a crude illustration, but I like it. He talks about uh, 2% milk. Any 2%ers out there? How about skim people? Okay, all right, weirdos. Drink water. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But he talks about what if that 2% was not 2% fat that was in the milk, but 2% urine? What kind of a difference would that make? Would you drink it? I would hope not. But what's his point? Anytime you mix something bad with something that's good, it ceases to be good anymore. Anytime you mix truth with error, it's not truth and error, it's just error. Anytime you dilute something, it ceases to be what it was. And Catholic theology teaches that salvation is truth, that it's through Jesus, but it's an error that it's also through your works combined with him. And they teach about the treasury of merits. Now, I'm not. this is from the Catholic Catechism of the Faith, okay, from 1995. And they teach this, as you'll see up behind me, you can read some of these things, that when Christ died, his merits were then given to the church. The church is then able to dispense his grace or his merits to people who do the sacraments and do good works, but this treasury is not limited just to the, tr- the works of Jesus, but it also has along with it the merits of Mary. As a 969 tells us, line 969 of the Catholic faith, when she ascended to heaven, so they don't believe that, Je- that Mary had a sin nature, the Immaculate Concession is not speaking about Jesus, it's speaking about Mary, and they believe that she did not die, and when she ascended to heaven, She continues to bring us the gifts of salvation. And when you pray the rosary, the beginning is fine. It says, Hail Mary, blessed are you among women. Blessed is thy fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That's a biblical phrase. But the next phrase said, Pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. So what are you saying? You're calling out to Mary to intercede on the behalf of sinners. So the Catholic Church believes that Mary is the second Eve. From their catechism, they teach that Jesus was the second Adam who accomplished salvation for all, and and Mary was the second Eve who also uh, brings in salvation for all people. But Mary didn't believe this. You know what Mary, as she's singing to the Lord in Luke chapter 1, this is what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit. Spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She knew that she was a sinner. She knew that she couldn't save herself and she needed Jesus just as everyone else did. So included also in this treasury of merits is the works of the saints and also their prayers as well. And through these you can attain full salvation as you cooperate with God as we're told that these sacraments earn salvation. So where do they get this from? Where do they come up with these uh, ideas? Well, they cite the book of uh, of Colossians, and in Colossians uh, they use the verse, uh, Colossians chapter. I'm sorry, I don't have it with me here, guys. If you could uh, put it up there for me. Colossians one, verse twenty four. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. So the Catholic Church will take this verse and say, see, this teaches about the doctrine of the treasury of merit. Christ wasn't sufficient enough, so the afflictions of others are filling up where Christ was lacking. But see, what this, they missed the whole context of that verse. The context just got done talking about the preeminence of Christ and how his single work alone was enough for salvation. So Paul is not undermine everything he just said. He's talking about something differently entirely. I'd love to show you what that is after. Come talk to me if you want to know interpretation of that verse. But this is what happens. Anyone who builds a faith that is not from the word of God has their verses, They all have verses that back up their doctrines they believe. But here's what happens. They build their doctrine on verses that are sometimes harder to understand. So some that are unclear, they build a foundation on that. They say, "Oh, look at this. We can make this work. It's the same thing with purgatory. They cite uh, the book of 1 Corinthians 3.13, talking about the day of judgment when all will be revealed and tried by fire. They say, well, obviously, tried by fire, that's a purging. This is a great verse that proves purgatory. See, what they do is they take an obscure verse out of its context, and they build a theology or a doctrine on those verses. I remember I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness, and she was, really wanted me to believe that in soul sleep. And that is the doctrine that when someone dies until the resurrection, they just sleep. And she took me to this verse in Ecclesiastes that was very obscure, talked about sleeping. And she said, see, that proves it. And I said, no, 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 no. You have to interpret this verse in light of the clear passages of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, where Jesus, where Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and all the other places that talk about a conscious reality of heaven and that the thief on the cross was told today, you're not gonna be sleeping in paradise, you're gonna be with me in paradise, And so that's what we have to do, is we have to interpret the harder passages of Scripture, not build doctrines on them, but interpret them with the whole counsel of God and what God's Word says. So Christ is sufficient. That's why Hebrews 7 tells us that he is able to say to the uttermost, there's nothing left for him to do. Galatians 2, 21. This is a special verse to me because I have a friend who I was doing a Bible study with, and uh, we went... After we were done, and he was steadying and he was convinced that works were a part of his salvation, he went home, and by himself, he read this verse. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And he says, I read that verse, and I realized that if my works can contribute to salvation, there's no need for Christ to die. And he placed his faith in Jesus that morning. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But one has said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the book of Hebrews unpacks that Christ's work alone is necessary for salvation, as it is demonstrated in Christ as our high priest. A prophet in the Old Testament represented the God to the people. A priest represented the people to God. And so we look at Hebrews chapter 9, it'll be on the screen behind me, verses 2 through 7. And we get a picture of exactly what the prophets did in the Old Testament. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in earthly places of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides of gold, Aaron's staff that abutted the table of the covenant. Above it was a cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak of in detail. These preparations thus have been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the priest goes. But he, but once a year, not, taking, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the un- unintentional sins of the people. So the Jewish temple had three different parts. The outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. Ray Dillard gives us a little more information as to what this was like. One time a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, And he would make atonement for the sins of the people. And a week before this happened, he was isolated all by himself. That was so he didn't touch anything unclean, that no impurities came to him, because he was about to go represent the people of God in the presence of God. His food was brought to him all week, and the night before he was to go into the Holy of Holies, he would stay up all night in prayer. And he would seek the Lord. He would confess sin and he would study the scriptures. And the next morning he would wake up and he would go and he would bathe from head to toe and put on white linens. And he would go, first of all, into the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement for his own sins. He would sacrifice a goat that was to pay for this, his own sin as the high priest that he had committed. He would come back out and then he would bathe and put back on his white linens and he would go back in and he would make atonement, a sacrifice for sins, for all the priests that had also committed sins. And then he would come back out, would wash from head to toe, put on a brand new article of white linen and would go back in and he would make atonement for all the sins of the people. Did you know this was all done in public? The temple would have been full, people watching as the high priest came in and out of the Holy of Holies. He would bathe behind a screen. They would see him come in and then go back in again, and all the while, the people were watching, making sure he wasn't forgetting anything, that he would get it right because this was so important. They were saying, and they would encourage him as he would do so, So you're doing great, praise the Lord, this is awesome, praise Yahweh, and they would encourage him as he went in and he stood in the presence of God on their behalf. But this was only temporary. What the priest did could never, ever take away sins. That's why Hebrews 10, verse three and four tells us, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of goats and sheep to ever take away sin. So it never was going to fully cleanse them. What it pointed to was the one who would come one day that would make atonement that would actually not just cover sins, but completely remove them. That's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus walking down the road, says, look, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' perfect one-time sacrifice was like no other human priest. He didn't have to take one in for his own sins because he didn't have any that's what qualified him to be the one sacrifice for sins. That's why verses uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 9 tell us this. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that had come, then through the greater and more perfect tent made with hands that is not of creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing redemption for all who would believe. Woo! Woo! Wow, I remember when I read that for the very first time. And I I only was used to the flannel graph Jesus that I saw on Sunday school that was just smiling and was just happy and just wanted to receive everyone. And this verse tells me that he can't just receive everyone until the price has been paid. And he goes in with his own blood and he pays the price so that all who believe could have sins forgiven for all of eternity. What's the result then? Eternal redemption. I was listening to this American Life last week podcast from NPR, and uh, there's a story about a lady that uh, was, would always listen every week to her favorite psychiatrist on, her, on a radio show. And she committed her life to living the way the psychiatrist had told her to live. And then after a little while, she started to pull away and not live that way anymore. And she began to feel guilty, and stopped listening to the psychiatrist for a matter of of five years, because every time she'd hear it, she would say, I'm just not living up to that standard anymore. And she said, I'm gonna take five years now after this time, I feel like I'm at a spot now where I've cleaned myself up enough to be able to listen again. And she went and looked for the psychiatrist, her podcast, to find out that three days before she had passed away. And I was sitting there thinking that whole time, this sounds just like someone who feels like they're too dirty to go to church, that their life isn't together enough to show up to church. And then the the host of the show goes, man, you sound like a sinner that's afraid to go to church. I was like, yes. But isn't that so much how we think? Man, my past, I need to clean up. I need to get my act together and then I'll be acceptable to God. God. Oh, my current life right now is such a mess. Brad, you'd have no idea what's going on in my life right now. Listen, I've got some serious things to do. I've got some stuff that I've got to take care of. I, I don't even know why I'm here this morning. I feel so guilty. Hear this gospel truth this morning. You don't have to clean up. In fact, you can't. It's impossible for you to clean yourself to be acceptable to God. You come to him with all your filth, all your sin, all your baggage, all your mistakes, all your wrongdoing, you say, I can't do this, I need Jesus to do it for me, and he does. He cleans you up and makes you presentable to God through his one-time sacrifice. That's why in verse 14 is so important, it's not a continual over and over that you become saved again every time you screw up, but verse 14 of chapter 10, oh sorry, let's go first of all to see why this is true in verse 11 of chapter 10, how do we know that this one-time sacrifice has been paid and every priest stands daily in his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all, all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There There was all kinds of furniture in the temple all kinds of it, but nowhere to be found in the entire temple was a chair, no couch, nowhere to sit down. That was intentional. It was to remind the priests that their work was never, ever done. When we put our kids to bed, sometimes I go sit on the couch in the middle of it, and my wife walks in and goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm sitting. It's like, the work is not done. Because that means you're finished when you've sat down. The priest never got to sit down, but when Jesus came in, not into the holy of holies on Earth, but the one that's up in heaven. He made the sacrifice for sin by, play, by dying on the cross, he sat down. See it's done. It's over. Everything that I've come to accomplish has been done. And that's why verse 14 of that same chapter is so glorious. It says, for a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, just look at that verse for a moment. Just let that soak in. Christ's single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So your status before God, if you're a Christian, is perfected. But this verse also tells you you're still being sanctified. So before God in his sight, perfection is what you have because of Christ's sacrifice. But you are still growing and being like him. And that's the reason that you grow and you be like him because he has made you perfect before God. And our desire is to want to achieve that perfection even though we never will in this life. What's the object of your faith? Is it works? Is it your politics? Is it uh, good vibes, being positive? Maybe you have no idea what the object of your faith is. Let me tell you this. You have to have an object of faith that is trustworthy, that can actually save. And the scriptures teach that any other object of faith aside from Jesus Christ is a faulty faith, a faith that will not save. So hear this this morning. If you're trusting anything else for salvation but Jesus' sacrifice, you're wrong. You are wrong, but you are so loved. That's what the gospel says, that you're wrong, but you're loved. The high priest, Jesus Christ, when he made the sacrifice for sins the night before, he didn't sleep either. He, stood, he prayed all night asking God that there was some other way, but he knew that there wasn't and said, I'm going to do this for you, Father, and for my love for you and those who have come to save. And he wasn't given a, a, a piece of white linen and was bathed, but he was stripped naked And he wasn't encouraged and said, great job. You're doing great. When he went to make the the atonement for the sins of the people, instead he was spat upon, mocked, beaten, jeered, and yet he still endured. He despised the shame and kept going forward and paid the price for salvation. This is the great love that God has for you. Come to him. Let him clean you up and make you acceptable to God through faith alone offered by grace alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you that although you are God, you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Jesus, but you made yourself of no reputation, taking on the very form of a servant, going and being obedient to death, even death on a cross, Because you've done so, you've risen again. God has highly exalted you above every name. Made you, confirmed you, Lord over all creation. God, I pray that we would understand in deeper what you've accomplished for us. That we can't contribute to salvation, but God, we want to live lives for you. God, we love you. We're grateful for your sacrifice.